Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who built the mysterious stone chambers found in New England? Were there European settlers in America before Columbus or even the Vikings? When out-of-place artifacts are found, is it really possible to tell how old they are and where they come from? Well, hello and welcome to the 649th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben. You know, I'm Paul. <clears throat> ben is up on some mysterious movie shoot in Cambridge. He's not the star, actually. He uh, is a, an audio engineer and is working on set there in, near Boston today and uh, possibly next week as well, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. I don't know anything more about it. Anyway, uh, those stony questions uh, have to do with our, our rather amazing guest we have today. However, before we get to our guest, I want to just mention something that seems to be sort of a, a stomach-turning weekly ritual now. We remember the victims of the latest terrorist outrage, this time in Nice, France. It's hard to keep up with these terrible things. And I think it's it's nice to say those things and to fly the flags at half-staff, but we have to do something about this. Well, that's not what the show is about, but that's my feeling. Anyway, today you bring you, we bring you a new guest on a captivating subject we usually don't hear about, and we welcome your phone calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240 locally, or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Now, we seldom have fiction writers on the show, but if they know the historical and scientific background of what they're writing about, that's a horse of a different color. David S. Brody is a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer and has been named Boston's best local author by the Boston Phoenix newspaper. A graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School, he is a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association, or NERA, and is a dedicated researcher in the field of pre-Columbian exploration of America. He has appeared as a guest expert on the History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery Channel. He is the author of four novels in his Templars in America series and they have been in Amazon Kindle's top ten bestsellers, bestseller list. David's forthcoming book, The Crones of Atlantis, will be his ninth novel. He lives in Westford, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, that's in our listing area, actually. And uh, his website is davidbrodybooks.com. David Brody, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, of course. Um, let's start right in with, uh, I guess, uh, something that's uh, rather general, as, as people might not be familiar with this subject. In your view, David, were there people from the, quote-unquote, old world in North America before the known visits by the Vikings in the 10th century? Well, before the known visits by the Vikings, I would say probably so. Between the known visits in the, in the 10th and 11th centuries and Columbus, I would say definitely so. Okay. You know, a lot of we all grew up with the you know, 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue and you know, Columbus discovered America. Well, obviously, as you just mentioned, the Vikings were here, but there's a 500 year gap between when we know uh, the Vikings were up in Newfoundland at a site called Lonsdale Meadows and when Columbus arrived in 1492. The idea that no one came back and forth during that 500 year period is really where my research focuses. Arrive a lot of trouble believing that no one did. I think. The reality is that people came, Europeans particularly came back and forth many times. Going back prior to the Vikings, I also think there's probably uh, strong evidence, there is strong evidence, there's probably a likelihood that other explorers, the Phoenicians, uh, for example, would have come across the Atlantic uh, prior to that time. So we can talk about either one of those, but I think, yes, the answer is uh, definitely people have been coming back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean for, for millennia. 
Okay. Now, uh, more specifically, as we only have an hour, what about New England here, where we're broadcasting from and where we both live? Uh, what specifically right. is going on here in, the, in that oh. period? So my, uh, the way I sort of got into this is I, the town I live in, in Westford, Massachusetts, we're up near Lowell, there's an artifact here called the Westford Knight. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. It's a, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a carving uh, on the bedrock, and it looks like it was definitely a medieval battle sword, and it may have been at one point more uh, a medieval knight carved into the bedrock. And the legend is that a gentleman by the name of Prince Henry Sinclair from the northern area of Scotland uh, island hopped his way across the North Atlantic in 1398, much as the Vikings had done in the 11th century, and uh, ended up in Nova Scotia. Then they came down to New England, up the Merrimack River, and found their way into uh, Westbrook, which is the highest spot in eastern Massachusetts. And while on an inland expedition, uh, probably with Native American guides, one of the party died, and they, and they carved a, a memorial effigy in the bedrock. And that's the site we have today in Westbrook. And I learned about this maybe you know, 10 years ago when my kids were in school. They came back from school with stories about this. And I went up to look at it because I was you know, writing novels at the time and looking for something fun to write about. And I thought it was a pretty compelling piece of evidence, but you're not going to rewrite the history books just based on one carving. And so I started looking around to see if there was other sites and other artifacts in New England that were consistent with the idea of early European exploration prior to Columbus. And it turns out there's a bunch of things. I mean, there's a, a round stone tower in Newport, Rhode Island, called the Newport Tower, which, you know, Paul and I used to be involved with near us. You've probably seen that. There's mm-hmm. a, a oh, rune sure. yeah. stones. Runes are uh, a Scandinavian script. Uh, runic carvings in, up in Maine and in, in the Bath area called the Spirit Pond Rune Stones. Another one in Narragansett Bay, uh, currently on the shore in North Kingstown, called the Narragansett Rune Stones. There's just a lot of these different sites and artifacts around all sort of pointing to the idea that these explorers were here. And, we, again, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The, the, um, the Icelandic saga, Leif you know, uh, Erikson um, and his group, they talk about coming to Vinland, and they talk about Vinland having uh, grapes, and, you know, grapes don't grow that far north up in Newfoundland. They have to come further south into New England. They talk about spending a snowless winter while the cattle graze, well, again, you're not going to have a snowless winter up in Newfoundland, but you could very well have one in Cape Cod or Narragansett Bay in that area. So the sagas themselves talk about uh, explorations that almost by their terms indicate that they were down in New England. So, again, we shouldn't be surprised at that. I think it would be more surprising if, for some reason, the Vikings touched their toe on, on northern Newfoundland and then scurried home without coming down and exploring further. It's interesting because uh, we were, I, was trying, I was just talking with our producer earlier about, uh, hi, Josh. Good to hey, see Paul. you. Good. Uh, uh, I get lonely when Ben's not here, so I have to talk to the producer. But um, the uh, 1837 opinion of, of uh, was it Char- Charles Christian Raffin, who believed uh, that if the Vikings were talking about grapes and Vinland, you know, Vin is in vine or wine or whatever, uh, you quite, can't quite imagine that in Newfoundland. However... Uh, in the 20th century, a lot of climatologists, began, when people really started studying climate, believed that uh, Newfoundland was a much was much warmer than it is today in the 10th and 11th centuries. So that may may or may not be correct with the with the cattle. I don't know. That's funny because yeah. you, you and I have a similar that warm. Yeah, so you and I have a similar pedigree with with the uh, New England Antiquities Research Association. Although I think I may may have been involved. 
uh, earlier period that, than you might have been, but we knew some of the same people and, and we, we, we speak in a way the same language, I think, so we should warn listeners that we may be agreeing on a lot of this. Um, so what, what about any actual evidence, David? I know that in, in NERA, which a great organization, I haven't been involved for many years, but there were some great people. It was a very odd mixture, uh, and you see the same thing in the UFO community, really. An odd mixture, of, uh, an unpleasant mixture of PhDs and true believers. You know, yeah, and, and I would find that at NERA meetings. Hmm? Yeah, a very classic mix. It, it basically, I, I, I sort of describe it as a group of contrarian thinkers. Yes. Don't believe everything they're told. The people who like to look, you know, around the corner and underneath the rocks and into the dusty corners of history to see what's really there. And exactly. now, sometimes, like you said, believe in UFOs or they believe in conspiracies, or in this case, they happen to believe in we call it the, you know, fringe history or whatever. But it's the idea that what we learned in the history books was not entirely accurate. Yes. No, I, I can't stand people doing my thinking for me. I'm sure you agree uh, in your yeah. own camp too. You know, but, but it's. Uh, one of those things that you uh, you take the best information you have and you make your own judgment. So speaking of, of best evidence, uh, how do we know, David, that, that uh, let's just take the inscribed rocks of Narragansett Bay, some of which you mentioned. Um, how do we know that those were actually carved, you know, who actually carved them and when? Well, yeah, it, it, again, there's, there's, one of the problems is, and I'm a lawyer by trade, so I'm used to doing things like we call it circumstantial evidence or the totality of the evidence. It would be nice if we had the smoking gun. Mm. If we had the, the one piece of evidence that substantially and conclusively indicates that, yes, Prince Henry Sinclair or somebody else was here. We don't have that yet, but we have a lot of really good other evidence that when you aggregate it all together, it makes for a really compelling case. So, for example, on a lot of these, um, a lot of these stone carvings, a lot of them are carved with metal tools into you know, granite or other hard rock. Well, the Native Americans didn't have the tools to have done that. A lot of them are in, uh, I mentioned before, the runic script. Well, obviously, the Native Americans don't speak runic. So sure. the idea that these are somehow Native American relics doesn't, doesn't make sense. Well, they they power, themselves uh, deny that they are. That, yeah, so that, that, that's the other. I mean, there's lots of different evidence. But one of the things we do in, in NERA and myself as a researcher, we go back to the Native American uh, tribe here in the area and, and talk about their oral history. And, you know, a lot of them say to us, yeah, we have an oral history of, of Europeans coming back and forth many times. Our oral history is consistent with the journey of Prince Henry Sinclair. The Mi'kmaq tribe in Nova Scotia remembers his visit from mm-hmm. the late 1300s. Um, the, um, the idea that the Newport Tower, um, you know, as, as a Native American friend of mine who's a tribal chief for the Wampanoag, likes to say, look, you didn't build that, the Europeans didn't build that without the cooperation of the Native Americans. Couldn't just fight your way across into Narragansett Bay and build something like that. It would have taken months without first having permission from the Native Americans. And and their oral history is that yeah, this is consistent. This, this was done by Prince Henry Sinclair, 1398, 1399, in that reign. So, um, you know, if you just ask the Native Americans to sit down and have, have a conversation with you about this, they you know, they shed a lot of light on this. And again, sure. they sort of laugh at the at the Christopher Columbus was first idea. Very often in archaeology, that does not occur, uh, talking to the natives. And I know that the entire East, uh, Easter Island debacle, you know, and uh, many people are familiar with, the, with these very strange statues, and this island is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it finally dawned, you know, where did this come from? It finally dawned on researchers to, to speak with the native people on the island who were descended from the ones who actually did. And they said, oh, yeah, well, this is how you do it. You know, and, and this is, you know, and they actually... Um, 
you know, in the spirit of Thor Heyerdahl, I guess they actually set up equipment, they actually set up a statue that had fallen over and whatever, using the technology, which was uh, relatively, was certainly clever <coughs> by the people who, uh, whose ancestors had done it. So in the same, yeah, well, in the same way, uh, let's talk a bit about some of the uh, uh, actual carvings and things of this kind, but, but let's start with the Newport Tower. And anyone in our listening area, I'm sure, has seen it. But though, for those who are not familiar with it in other parts of the universe, if you could uh, tell us about the Newport Tower, uh, what it looks like. Unfortunately, on radio, we can't show a picture of it. But uh, Right. It, it, it's a round stone tower with uh, eight, um, it's a Romanesque style, with eight pillars and eight arches. And it's got a bunch of randomly placed windows. And it sits in a park in Newport, Rhode Island, pretty much the highest spot in Newport, Rhode Island. It's in the park. Uh, Toro Park, it's near the Viking Hotel, sort of near the Tennis Hall of Fame. Yes, so. In Newport. So that, is it the hotel's named Viking, so it's got to prove Viking, it. Yeah, to, it's, yeah. <laughs> ironically, or probably not ironically enough. There's, there's, a, you know, there's, there's been a, hundreds of years of sort of back and forth in the Newport area, historians claiming it was either Norwegian, it was Viking, it was Portuguese, it was uh, Chinese. You know, Gavin Menzies in his book, 1421, about the tower was Chinese. Yes. Um, a modern, there's a school of thought that thinks it's, a, it's a, a modern, not a modern, but a colonial windmill built by Governor Benedict Arnold, who's a, an ancestor of the trader Benedict Arnold, uh, in the 1670s when uh, the existing uh, windmill burned down. Um, so there's lots of different people who sort of claim uh, it as their own, but uh, in, in my mind, based on the various pieces of evidence that, that, that I've Notice that Nira has collected, that other people have collected. There are uh, architectural features to the tower that point to 14th century Scottish. In particular, there's a, there's a fireplace. Uh, the fireplace has a flue system that is shaped like a devil's horn, sort of a double flue. And that's a, that's a feature that's fairly unique to 14th century Scotland. Um, there are structural uh, issues to the tower that make it unlikely to have been built as a windmill. It might have been retrofitted as a windmill later on. There are some carbon dating results from some of the mortar. Uh, in ancient times, the mortar was used uh, was made with seashells. And uh, about three, four years ago, a group of Nero researchers uh, recovered a seashell and had it carbon dated at Woodpole Oceanographic Society on the Cape. And the, the dating on that came back into the early 1400s. Hmm. So that date seashell that was the mortar back to that time period. And so the number of, uh, the, the other issue about it being a colonial windmill is having been built in the 1670s, uh, that's a difficult one to, to accept because that's the height of uh, Metacomet King Philip's uprising, Native American uprising. And I, I don't think the colonists would have bothered to waste their time building a stone windmill. They should have built a stone fort and maybe erected a temporary wooden windmill. Uh, the idea they would have built a stone windmill at that time doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. In fact, there's a fireplace in it, if you know anything about gristing, grain, milling. You don't, you don't put fire in there because it can can cause an explosion. There's lots of different sort of pieces of the tower that make you realize it probably was not built as a colonial windmill. Sure. As far as, uh, let's get into carbon dating a little bit. Radiocarbon dating is, is uh, unless I'm outdated myself, is, is still the uh, uh, standard, I believe, for uh, finding out how old things are. Uh, but they have to be uh, organic or at least carbon-based. Am I right? Yeah, or organic. I mean, that's the best way to think of it. If it was ever alive, you can carbon date it. Yeah, but, so, but you no, can't carbon date a rock. You can't carbon date a rock. And so we have these carvings, we have these artifacts, and most of them are rock and stone, and you can't carbon date them. Now, you can do uh, what's called 
comparative weathering analysis. So if you have a, 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 rune, so a runic inscription, for example, example the ones up in, uh, well, let's take the one in, in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. Uh, it's, it's a little difficult to study because it's underwater for a while, but the idea being that over time, the, uh, the carving itself will weather away and eventually will match the face of the rock, which has been weathering for 12,000 years. Right? The rock has been sitting there probably since it was deposited at the end of the last ice age, uh, 10,000 BC. But you, a, a geologist can go in and look at the carved area and determine how fresh that carving is, how weathered away is it, how pitted is it, how smooth is it, uh, which minerals have washed away, which minerals are still there. And you can kind of get a nice general idea of how old that carving is. And so that's, that's where a lot of the work is being done. There's a famous runestone in Minnesota called the Kensington Runestone, mm. and a geologist by the name of Scott Walter has done a lot of work on that. Uh, people may recognize him from the History Channel America on Earth. But the first thing Scott ever did in this field was, was do a weathering analysis of the Kensington Runestone, and his conclusion was that the weathering of the inscription was older than any colonial settlement in Minnesota. So that you know, sort of takes you out of the colonial period. Now we've got Native Americans, but they didn't speak runic and they didn't carve with metal tools. Or it is what the stone says it is, which is a uh, Goths and Norwegians visiting Minnesota in 1362. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the first foot in the door from a scientific point of view, the first time anyone really scientifically was able to date any of these. And then Scott Walter came out to look at the the sites and artifacts here in New England, and he was able to match up a lot of the runic carvings uh, from the one in Minnesota to the ones in Maine and Rhode Island. A lot of the carvings, the letters that were used, are unique to the three root stones in North America, and they're not found on runic inscriptions in Europe, Scandinavia. Uh, again, the idea being that there was some kind of you know, local dialect or local usage that came into use here that wasn't found in Europe or Scandinavia tying those three stones together and also indicating, since they were not known to the Europeans, uh, indicating it probably was not some kind of hope because no one knew about these letters until they, until they discovered the runestones themselves. So, uh, that didn't explain that well, but um, oh, the idea okay. being that these are unique to North America. Okay, David, I just ask you to, uh, we probably should explain runes and runic inscriptions for those who don't uh, know. Yeah, uh, a runic inscription, a rune is a Scandinavian if you ever go to Iceland, that's the, the, the writing that they use. Um, it used to be used all over Scandinavia. Uh, today, you know, again, still in Scandinavia, but uh, in medieval times, it would have been that would have been the script that um, Scandinavian uh, or, or Viking descendants would have used uh, on their journey. Okay, thank you. All right, now uh, to give a little background here, in the year 312 A.D. Uh, a young Roman general by the name of Constantine was in the middle of a civil war, uh, a Roman civil war, and uh, he claims that he saw in the sky a, uh, things weren't going well, he saw in the sky a, a an illuminated cross with the words, in hoc signo vinces, in other words, um, that's that would, that's Latin, of course, and it means, uh, re- translated, it's uh, in this symbol, conquer. And supposedly he picked, got a bunch of crosses and walked into battle and, and, you know, wiped the floor with his enemies, right? Now, Constantine was a pagan. Officially, he was a pagan until his dying day because he was baptized on his uh, deathbed by a priest who the Orthodox considered, uh, whom the Orthodox considered to be a heretic, but that's, a, be that as it may, in hoc signo vinces appears on a rock in 
the Newport area that was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, was exposed after Hurricane Sandy in 2010. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Why is it so, in Newport, do you think? Well, so, the, so the, 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 to continue your story with Constantine, later on the Knights Templar, who many people think built the Newport Tower or, or, or their, their descendants or their the vestiges of the Templars, some of the Templars were outlawed in 1307, and we're talking 1398 here, 1399, 1400. But many people think the vestiges of the Templars are the people who came over here and, 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 and were exploring. Um, but after Constantine, much after Constantine, the Templars also adopted this Latin signal, uh, symbol, in hoc signo vinci, um, and they used that as their battle cry as well. And so this stone that you mentioned that was uncovered uh, four or five years ago after the hurricane, um, it was found by a, a beach walker, and it probably it, it was known to have been there way back in the 1930s. Then it was covered up again and sort of lost. Periodicals mm. wash it away. Some of the local folks know about it, but and they protect it, and it, it gets covered up every every high tide basically. But the idea is that perhaps this is another piece of evidence uh, of when the Templars came and built the Newport Tower and probably carved in there against the runestone. This is on the shore just down slope from the Newport Tower. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I have seen it. Um, it's, it. yeah. yeah. It, and I must say, there's a picture of it. I've, if The best we can do with pictures is we have a Talking Points page uh, on our website, behindtheparanormal.com. If, if you have access to the Internet, uh, look for the uh, Talking Points link on the left and uh, go to this year, 2016, and, and show number 649. And you can see a picture of this of this uh, carving in Newport. Uh, it struck me, David, when I saw it, that the first thing about it was that it, it's it's um, it is very weathered. It, it looks as though it's been there for a very long time. Now, I'm no expert on that, but uh, that's one of the first things I understand that an expert would look for. Uh, so I mean, it's not right. as if somebody carved it 100 years ago or something. Right. So the geologist uh, Scott Walter has come out to examine this many times. The problem with it is. It's, uh, it's only visible for about 20 minutes at low tide, and even even then only really at lunar low tide. So it's hard for him to get his, his equipment in there, obviously. Exactly, yeah. He doesn't want to get it wet. Uh, best he can tell, it's really old. But, well, you know, what does that mean? It, it could be a couple hundred years old, which is not particularly interesting from a pre-Columbian point of view, or it could be six, 700 years old, in which case it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's just not that exact science, especially if he can't take it out and get it to his laboratory. Okay. We have an artifact in Westford, which uh, sort of goes along with the Westford night carving. It's called the Boat Stone. It's about the size of a, of a desk chair seat. I mean, it's, you know, two feet by three feet, something like that. We were able to ship that out to Minnesota and have him study it, and he was able to determine that the weathering patterns in that carving was consistent with a 600-year-old weathering. So, you know, that was a big help. So we were able, that, that's a freestanding stone we were able to ship to Minnesota. We could, we can't do that with the uh, in hoc stones just because it's part of the bedrock. Of course, yeah. Right in the ocean. So, well, so we, we're somewhat limited to what we can do. Uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of archaeology and you know how archaeologists um, are skeptical about all this. And part of the reason is for an archaeologist, the only thing that really matters to them are things that they actually that a they find themselves and b come out of the ground. So they don't like to look at things like geology or or. Uh, other kinds of history, even other kinds of science, and especially they don't like to look at any artifacts that they don't find themselves. Oh, amateurs so like true. Europe folks or our, you know, when we find stuff, it becomes discarded or, or discounted right away. And sort of a circular, you know, again, as a lawyer who, who's used to 
trained to looking at and weighing evidence, I understand that you have to look at this stuff a little bit skeptically because there are going to be some hoaxes once in a while. But I don't think you can just throw the evidence out completely and act like it doesn't exist. To me, that's, that's not a scientific method. And I think all this stuff needs to be looked at, even things that are not from the ground and even things that are not found by archaeologists. I think all of them have some evidentiary value. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I think the sciences uh, of all kinds need to talk to each other. Then there, there needs to be a more of a whole, of a holistic approach. I mean, and not because again, you have to remember, David. I'm sure that you agree that really uh, scientists are no more pure than anyone else. And it's it, in the end, it's all about for many anyway. Bucks, you know, where do the grants come from? Don't rock the yeah. boat. Um, academically, there's a pecking order, and when you've spent a hundred grand on a degree, and then someone like yourself or myself comes along and questions it, uh, how you know who do you think you are? You know, and science is not served that way. But that be that as it may, um, why don't we take our break? I was and actually about to uh, suggest that to you, Paul. Yes, uh, that's why you are indispensable, Josh. Thank you very much. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, just just with Paul today and Josh. And uh, we're speaking with David Brody. Fascinating conversation about the uh, stone artifacts in New England that may have been before Columbus and the Vikings. And we will be right back, so stay with us. It's your business. The health of our economy, the strength of our businesses affects every individual, every family. I'm Frank Prosnitz. Each Thursday, we'll visit with leaders to discuss important business and economic issues. Join me Thursdays at 4 p.m. on WOON. It's your business because it is. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on ON1240. We're speaking today with David Brody, a very, very well-known novelist uh, on the, uh, well, certainly in the Boston area and uh, globally, I'm sure. And uh, we're talking about the stone chambers of New England, the stone artifacts of New England, and and a lot of history that may not be well-known history uh, to many people. Now, David, I'm sure that you've done what we've done, and that's fly between Boston and Reykjavik, Iceland. And the first thing you notice, uh, that I noticed anyway, uh, Iceland Air, uh, they have the rather disconcerting habit of naming each of their planes after a volcano in Iceland, which I found a little bit disturbing. But when you finally get there, it's only a five-hour flight from Boston. And you can see when you're low enough islands, I mean, all you have to do is island hop, you know, and, and and even in the ancient world, from one to the other. And that's essentially, I guess, how the Vikings got from Iceland, Greenland, Newfoundland, and, and that's essentially how they did it. Didn't, it wouldn't seem to be that difficult. Exactly. So, I started, we started talking about Prince Henry St. Clair, who was a Scotsman, who we think came to New England in the late 1300s. But his mother was a Norsewoman, so basically he was half Scottish and half Norse. Uh, and he ruled in the northern Orkney Islands of Scotland, which back then was part of Norway, but today is part of Scotland. But if you're, if you're leaving from the Orkney Islands and you set off, like you said, island hop to, to the Shetland Islands, to the Faroe Islands, then to Iceland, then to Greenland, across to Labrador, down to Newfoundland, down to Nova Scotia, um, and then you're you know, hop right down to, to New England. So, again, you're never at sea for more than a couple of days. It's not that far a journey. And, you know, we know the Vikings did it. We, we, there's, no, there's no doubt that the Vikings did it. So the idea that people wouldn't have done it afterwards is almost a little bit silly. I think one of the problems with the, the arrogance of modern science at times is that we think that our ancestors were stupid. You didn't survive in those days if you were stupid. 
I think that people like the Vikings and anyone who, who survived childhood, that you, you had to be sharp, you had to be smart, and you had to be, know what you were doing. So I think it's, it's an entirely feasible about you know, the, the things that we're talking about as far as pre-Columbian visitations. Um, you, we mentioned the, the Knights Templar, David. Uh, for those who may not know what that is, could you explain, and then we'll take it from there. So the Templars, um, they were formed in the early parts of the uh, in the early parts of the 11th century, and, and purportedly to protect pilgrims who were visiting uh, Jerusalem, the Holy Land. Um, but they didn't really do much of the protection. What, what they did do is they they, they made their way to uh, King Solomon's temple, the ruins, and, and, and spent nine years digging. And somehow they found something uh, that made them uh, an incredibly powerful military order within the next generation. They came back to Europe. Uh, the, the Pope agreed to sort of make them their own entity, uh, free from taxes and, and free from uh, governance by the, the, the monarchs in Europe. Uh, they grew to be incredibly powerful, uh, a fighting force for the church. And for about 200 years, they were the most powerful entity in all of Europe. And then in 1307, I, what they and what they did for a lot of that time is they went over and they, they fought the Crusades. I mean, their their goal was to try to, to get the uh, quote unquote infidels out of Jerusalem and recover it for Christianity. Um, but then in 1307, um, the King of France, with uh, cooperation from the Pope, essentially outlawed them and uh, arrested a number of their leaders, uh, imprisoned them, tortured them, whatnot. And the order, you know, just as when the mafia was outlawed, it didn't disappear. When the Templars were outlawed, they didn't disappear. They went underground. And many of them resurfaced in Scotland because at the time, Scotland was not beholden to the Pope for historical reasons I won't get into here. Some of them went to Portugal and reconstituted themselves as the Knights of Christ. Um, but it's the group that ended up in Scotland that we're most interested in because I think that that may have eventually led to the Prince Henry Sinclair expedition. And that also many historians believe... Uh, resurfaced uh, a couple hundred years later as the Freemasons, the modern-day Freemasons. Many people believe had their roots in the, in the medieval Templar order. So that's the Knights Templar, and, and uh, the reason we think they may have come over to, to the New World is, A, they needed a big haven. I mean, that's, the Pope was after them, so that was one thing. Secondly, they had the ability, based on their hundreds of years of, of power, they had a fleet, they had navigational abilities, they may have recovered uh, maps and charts during the time in the Middle East. Remember, you know, Europe was just coming out of the Dark Ages at the time and did not have the sophistication that other areas of the world did, whether it's navigation, maps, charts, compasses, astrolabs, those kinds of things. That the Templars may have learned some navigational skills that were unique to Europe uh, during that time in the Middle East that would have allowed them to, again, to cross the Atlantic. Uh, perhaps they had treasures they wanted to save and keep from the Pope and from the Church. Uh, what better place to hide them than an area that no one knew how to get to? So Indeed, there's, yeah. a lot, there's lots of evidence that sort of indicates that there were people here that they were either related to or descended from the medieval Knights Templar. Okay. Be- before we burn up this hour, because we- we're doing so rather quickly, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books, your website, where people can find out more about you, and where people can get Great. the books. Yeah, so... So my books, um, there are there are actually now five in the series. It's called the Templars in America series. Let's see what they are. They're modern day historical fiction. Like my characters stumble upon these artifacts, and you know, through going around looking at them, uh, the readers also get to see them and learn about them. 
and but the the whole thing is shrouded in in a, in a modern day thriller, you know, mystery. You're a good writer, I have to say that. I don't give those compliments easily because I'm an editor. But <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, Paul. Thank you. I love to read historical fiction, so that's that's what I write. I mean, to me, the best kind of book to read is something that you know puts me on a roller coaster, but I also learn something along the way. Absolutely, that's what I, I like. That's I what agree. I try to write. Yeah, I'm and sure so, you agree with you know, me that of, I, I can't stand uh, inaccurate historical fiction, but yours uh, is great. Right. I, I I'm really pretty orthodox about about. I'm not going to say all my history is. is it's 100% accurate, but it is um, all plausible. Like, I don't make things up. And, and I actually include images in my novels, which a lot of you know a lot of fiction writers don't do. But you'll see pictures of things like the Newport Tower and the rune stones that we've talked about and the Westford Night Carving and all those things. So readers can actually go in and, and see what I'm talking about. And if it's in the book, it's real. You know, mm-hmm. It really exists. Um, so, you know, I've sort of branched off from some of the medieval stuff going back earlier to look at some of the things like Brenda the Navigator, who was an Irish monk in the 6th century. My latest novel focuses on some of the stone chambers in New England and perhaps were built by the by the Irish monks, the Colbys and the, the Druids and stuff. And I'm writing one now that focuses on the on the lost continent of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. There's lots of evidence in and around New England that sort of indicates that you know, maybe there was this, this lost continent that goes back 12,000 years ago. But I have a lot of fun, again, going down these rabbit holes of history and, and scrounging around and, and seeing what kind of evidence there is that might support some of these legends that we all read about. Sure. I'm glad you brought up the stone chambers, David, because that's uh, was my next question. And uh, wh- there, there, there seem to be a lot of these stone chambers. Now, people can say, well, the farmers built them as, as root cellars. But uh, here in Rhode Island, because Rhode Island being so small, everything is miniature sometimes. You know, you, there there are some some little stone chambers out in Foster, the Parker Woodland, owned by the Audubon Society, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they are the same as you'd find in other places in New England, only little. So I don't know <laughs> quite what that means. Um, and certainly there may be some. Certainly there are plenty of stone chambers built by farmers. And but but what about the really strange ones? And I'm thinking too of uh, what used to be called Mystery Hill. Not now it's America's Stonehenge, uh, owned by mutual friends of ours, the the Stone family, which I love the perfect name. Uh, so uh, what's your opinion on on the stone chambers? Who built them? Why uh, is is there a pattern among them? Uh, how could you how could you draw the whole phenomenon together for us? Yeah, so, so the Stone Chambers, I'll, I'll get to the America Stonehenge site in a second, but I just want to drop a little a note in there that, you know, for example, you mentioned the farmers, but, but they were not all built by farmers. For example, there's one that was first documented in 1654 in, um, in Groton, Connecticut. And before any colonists ended up down there, there's a, you know, a, a beaver trader notices a, a, a stone chamber and writes about it. So, and, and, and it's not in the Native American style. The Native Americans did do some vision quests and some of these stone things, but they always left the roof off so that they could have their vision quest and the spirits could enter through. And so this is not Native American, but it, it predates any colonists, so it could not have been a colonial farmer. All right, so who built it? So now we can talk about places like America Stonehenge. Once we get our foot in the door and say, well, they weren't Native American and they weren't colonial, who could have done these? Um, and again, we have, we have some carbon dating, uh, I'm sorry, some luminescence testing from a chamber in Upton, Massachusetts that pushes it back, again, fired to the colonists. Okay, so we've got hard science getting these things prior to the colonists. So, yes, the farmers did build some of them as root cells, but not all. Okay? And the Native Americans say, we didn't do it. That's not us. You know, that's not our style. It's European corbelling technique. We didn't mm-hmm. do that. Okay, so now who could it be? So we look at sites like the American Stonehenge site, and that's a site I think that goes back even earlier than Brendan the Navigator and the Irish, which is around 
550 AD. I think that goes back probably to the Phoenicians. Because if you look at the different pieces of evidence at that site up in New Hampshire, um, there's some really compelling evidence that, again, points to 3,500 years ago. Um, there's um, The site essentially is a giant calendar in stone where the, the, uh, the summer and winter solstices and the fall and spring equinoxes and the cross-quarter days sunsets and sunrises are, are all marked by these massive standing stones on the horizon. So if you're standing in the center of this complex, the, the ritual center of the complex, looking out to the horizon during any one of those days on the sunset or sunrise, the sun essentially sits on top of these vertical standing stones like a golf ball on top of the sea. And that's how in ancient times people mark the changing of the season. When do we sail our ship? When do we plant our crops? When do we hunker down for the winter? Again, it was a massive calendar. And the idea that this was somehow done by a, a farmer or just happenstance, it's, it's ridiculous. If you spend any amount of time at that site, you're just blown away by the complexity and, and the majesty of, of the whole thing. In the ceremonial center, there are a bunch of these stone chambers, okay? So, um, and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're nowhere near any farm, so they're not root cellars. And they're too small to be utilitarian in any way. What they are is, they're the place where you sit, a priest in ancient times would sit cross-legged in this tiny little chamber, and from there he would look out, and he'd be looking out for that, that marker, for that sun to set or rise above that standing stone. And it would, he, knew how, he knew what seat to sit in. But those chambers, many of them, are those seats for the priest to look out at. Okay. Um, and and so, that, so it's a fascinating sight. The reason we think it goes back to the time of the Phoenicians is there's some some stone carvings there, one of which is, is in a script called Ogum, it's an ancient script, and it reads to Baal of the Canaanites. Baal was the sun god of the ancient Canaanites. And but those are the Phoenicians. But you go back to that time period, you're talking about 3,500 years ago, 1,500 B.C., in that range. And just some other evidence there that ties that site to that time period. I won't get into it too much right now, but uh, I would strongly recommend, if, you're, if your listeners have not been to the American Stonehenge site, it is a truly fascinating site, and probably... Those buildings, those edifices, those stone chambers are probably the oldest chambers, oldest standing uh, edifices in, in North America. Well, that's true. And just to point out, it is in North Salem, New Hampshire, not very far from where we are. And uh, you go on up there, it's, it's very accessible, it's open to the public. Uh, there was a fee to get in, but, it, but it's reasonable, and uh, it's like a lovely place to even just take a walk. And there are all sorts of things to see and tell tell Dennis Stone up there that uh, Paul, Ben, and David, and Josh sent you up. So, uh yeah, to get a chance to go, the best time to go, I, I love to go uh, on either the solstices or the equinoxes, sunrises or sunsets. There's usually a large crowd of people up there, and it, it really is a very moving thing to see the sun setting or rising right on top of one of these standing stones. And the reason it's called America Stonehenge is because it, it does a lot of the same things that Stonehenge England does. And in fact, this is really, this will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, on the summer solstice sunrise, which is, again, the most important day of the year if you're a sun worshiper. Back then, if you were a sun worshiper, Baal is the sun god. But on the summer solstice sunrise, the most important day of the year because it's the longest day of the year, the sunniest day of the year, the, the, the sun rises in such a way that it actually lines up uh, the Stonehenge site in New Hampshire to the Stonehenge site in England. Wow. It's really a fascinating alignment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right again on, on June 21st uh, every year on the sunrise. Now, uh, before I get into what may be our last question, Josh, do you have any questions for um, David? I actually do not. Okay. Well, that's all right. I, I sprang that <laughs> on you. Okay. 
Well, uh, well so you're, you're explaining yourself in a very full and complete manner then, David. Very good. Um, <laughs> my question here, David, is something that uh, might not be so obvious, but it is, I think, if you, if you mention it, that a, a large ritual site of that kind, or even many of the artifacts that have been found, if they do indeed go back to the Phoenicians or, wh- or whomever, would require the support of a relatively large and functioning civilization on site. In other words, you know, uh, or, or maybe or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it seems as though you have to have an infrastructure for producing and distributing food. You have to have some sort of infrastructure for uh, protection uh, against whatever, uh, both the elements and, and uh, hostile you know, neighbors, whatever, uh, in order to engage in a project of this magnitude. And, and th- this is a big place we're talking about in North Salem, New Hampshire. Not to mention something like the Newport Tower. Do you see a civilization having existed in New England? And, and you know, we've got, you know, centuries, empty centuries that, that we know nothing about. Uh, so, so with that as a background, do you see uh, there having been a civilization in New England that, that uh, of which this may be the tip of the iceberg? Yeah, no, I don't see civilization as much as trade. So when we talk about the Phoenicians, I think what was happening was um, you know, the Bronze Age required copper and tin. That's how you made bronze. Mm-hmm. And we know that tin, a lot of it came from Cornwall in England, not far from, ironically, Stonehenge. Okay. The Phoenicians were the navigators. They were the merchant marines of ancient times. They, they basically, the Egyptians didn't like to go to sea, so the Phoenicians did all the navigation and all the travel. And, and we know they were able to circumnavigate Africa. And so, and Thor Heyerdahl proved that they could have come across the Atlantic. So it's not at all reasonable to think they were they were out on the Atlantic. Again, they went as far as England at least. But they did copper. And it's thought to people from the Midwest, up Lake Superior in that range, there's a ton of copper, they call it slow copper, and the Native Americans will tell you that thousands of years ago, uh, an ancient people came and took a lot of it, okay? So who were those ancient people? I think it was the Phoenicians. I think they were coming to North America to get copper to fuel the Bronze Age. I think obviously they would have had to have made an alliance, some kind of trade alliance with the Native American tribes. Because as you said, you know, you needed food, you needed support, you needed uh, defense. You weren't going to fight your way across North America to Lake Superior to get copper. It wasn't going to happen. Right. Uh, I think the Stonehenge site in New Hampshire was built... Uh, where it was built because it did align with the Stonehenge site in England. I think that's why they chose that site in New Hampshire. It wasn't exactly on the way to the Great Lakes, but it's not really out of the way either. But I think that's why that site was put where it is. Um, and again, there's strong evidence um, that this group continued on to the Great Lakes area. And, 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 and so a lot of, you ask questions of the civilization. I, I, obviously, some of them would have stayed and probably uh, intermarried and intermingled with the Native Americans. And we have some of the ancient uh, legends about giants. And when they were talking eight, nine foot, we're not talking 15, 20 feet, but eight or nine foot. And I will remind our listeners that the, the, the giants of the Bible all come from Lebanon, Og, and those people, the hills of Lebanon, and that's where the Phoenicians came that's from. That's true. So yeah. The Phoenicians were here. Uh, mining copper, they probably would have bought their biggest, strongest guys, okay, and some of them might have stayed, and that might have been the genesis of some of the oversized uh, humans that we have in Native American legend, and we have evidence of so many of those skeletons being unearthed during the 1800s, 1900s. Quite plausible. Eight, yeah. eight to nine feet skeletons, not 12 to 15 feet skeletons. Another, 
another factor that has been noted that, that, that might back up what you say, David, is, is that, uh, that it seems that as a rule, the farther west one goes in North America, the more Asian the features of the native tribes are. Generally, and on the East Coast, there are some with very European features. Right, and, and if you ask Cherokee, for example, where where their their homeland is, they will tell you they came from the land of the rising sea, of the sure. rising sun, pardon me, yeah. across the sea of the rising sun. Yeah, get that out. You know, and, and they will tell you that they they they're all legends that came from from the east, not from the west. And you know, as you say, the Asiatic features are there mostly on the western native tribes, less so on the eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it's the type of thing that the archaeologists won't sort of open the door to, but common sense screams at you, you know, why not? Why wouldn't at some point travelers have come across in ancient times across the Atlantic? Well, I just found something here that, that actually I wrote that kind of would, would agree with your um, uh, economic picture that, that you present as far as uh, the trade is concerned. And I'm looking at uh, something here from the uh, one of the Narragansett Bay stones, the Arnold Point Cupstone, which I think you mentioned... Uh, you haven't seen. I'd be happy to take it down sometime and show it to you. No, I have not seen that one yet. Yeah. Um, but it's located by an old coal mine on a Quidnick Island in, here in Rhode Island. And uh, the, the uh, findings are that coal from Viking sites in Greenland was determined in the 1970s to be similar to, if not the same as, the type found only on a Quidnick Island. So maybe there was coal mining going on, and, and precisely uh, in line with what you're saying, whether it be Phoenicians or Vikings or whomever, you know. Yeah. See, what you're doing, Paul, is you're using science, different kinds of science, not archaeology, to prove a theory, and I think that's perfectly justifiable. And again, the problem we have is the archaeologists—they basically say if it didn't come out of the ground at an archaeological dig, we just can't—we can't give it any weight. And I'm like, well, what, what, that's such an arbitrary rule, added to the fact that you can't get an archaeologist to go to one of these sites because it's almost like uh, career suicide for them to, to, to entertain the idea of this stuff. Well, so precisely. Catch-22. Yeah. Well, we're not going to dig. We're not allowed to dig, but if you can't find anything with us there, we're not going to count it. <laughs> exactly. Circle, you know, it's just circular reasoning. It's, and that being said, I mean, there is, uh, and perhaps you could you could extrapolate on this as we as we close uh, the show here, but is that uh, <clears throat> there is um, compelling evidence of global trade not only in this period, but, but possibly going back to prehistoric times, to, to as I say, you know, empty whole millennia that are empty that we really don't know much about. Um, I think there is compelling evidence for that. Well, you said earlier, and I think it's a really astute comment, that ancient man was a heck of a lot smarter than we think they are. Oh, they yeah. had to, be, to survive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they were really good at is reading the stars and navigating. Again, that's what they did. The stars were a mystery to them, but it was also their entertainment, their television, their movies, their the Pokemon Go. Okay, that's what they did. <laughs> they looked at the stars. And they were able to navigate and understand things like eclipses and, 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 and you know, navigation and astronomy. But, again, the idea that they would not have been able to use the stars to navigate and to cross the oceans, I, I think it's just naive of us and it's silly of us. And, and I, you know, go back to your original question. Yes, I think that, that men uh, have been coming back and forth across the Atlantic and probably Pacific Oceans for thousands of and naive to think otherwise. Very good. Well, fascinating conversation, uh, David. And let me just ask, uh, what is ahead for you? What, what's your next project? I know you said you're working on a novel about Atlantis. Right. Well, I have a novel that should be out uh, this fall. It's called The Crones of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. The crone, I think everyone knows, is a, is a sort of a witch-like woman, but it comes from the word crown. It used to be a, a leader. A crone used to be a female leader, and then you know, during medieval times, the church sort of turned on women a little bit. But a 
phone used to be a, a considered a, an honorary term. Sure. But I found a lot of really interesting evidence about the ancient land, the continent, or island of Atlantis. And, you know, did it exist? Is it just legend, or is there some strong evidence? Obviously, I think there is. Otherwise, I would not have written the novel. Strong evidence of, of the fact that this, this ancient land did exist, some kind of sophisticated culture, and there are vestiges of that still today that we see uh, in various parts of the Atlantic Rim. Very good. So that's to be out. I'm really excited about that because that's my first time sort of going back that far. And I was really surprised at how much evidence there was. I was really excited about that. Very so good. That comes out Great. And uh, tell us your website one more time. DavidBrodyBooks.com. Uh, the books are available on Amazon. They're on Kindle. Um, and, again, they're fun for people who like uh, to learn about this history but do it sort of in an adventure, thriller-type way, historical fiction. Um, uh, I'd love to hear from readers, too. Anybody, you know, reach out to me after you've read it and let me know your thoughts. And ask Excellent. Questions, whatever. But Very good. I appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much. David Brody, uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Right now. Okay, folks, David Brody novels. Check them out, davidbrodybooks.com. Very interesting conversation. So let's get down to our own announcements here. Uh, join us in Exeter, New Hampshire, on Saturday and Sunday, September 3rd and 4th, for the Exeter UFO Festival. This is a really fun annual event sponsored by the Exeter Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities and the whole town. Merchants, restaurants, everybody gets into the act. It's, it's just a lot of fun. Um, along with ourselves, speakers include Richard Dolan, Kathleen Marden, Denise Stoner, Larry Holcomb, Stephen Mather, Stephen Mather Lees, Peter Robbins, and Ryan Mullahay, most of whom you've heard on this show one time or another. Uh, we, we will present, that's Ben and I, will present a new, a new talk on more strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts, about uh, parallels and patterns and uh, connections between all these phenomena people don't think usually are related, but they are in our belief. And on uh, that'll be on Saturday, uh, the, the 3rd of September, and on Sunday the 4th, in our usual time slot here on ON 1240, uh, we'll do a live broadcast from Exeter Town Hall uh, with all the event speakers and a live audience. That's the first time we've ever done that in nine years on the air. If you can't make it to the event, uh, just listen in at the usual time slot, as I said, here on 1240, uh, ON 1240, or the simple radio app by Streama. We find that that is a good app if you're uh, in Iceland or some other place, uh, wherever you may be. A lot of our U.K. listeners use it, and it's quite successful. So Friday and Saturday, uh, October 7th and 8th, we'll be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. It's a great event, and our good friends uh, Susan Spooler and Willie Miranda uh, do a fantastic job up there, and uh, it's also a, it'll be a, a lot of fun. That, that, that's a Friday and Saturday um, event, so it'll be great, too. Uh, then on Sunday, October 16th, join us at Roger Williams Park in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, for the Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis Charity Walk. Uh, to join us and the rest of the team behind the paranormal or to just donate, see the link at behindtheparanormal.com. Uh, the walk is two to three miles. It's, it's very leisurely. Uh, begins at 10 a.m. And, uh, we may or may not do a broadcast from there. I don't know, because that'll be our slot as well. Uh, we're trying to figure, work, work that out now as we go. But again, check that out. It's a wonderful, wonderful cause, and uh, we like to support charities. And October, as you can see, is going to be busy. Uh, on Tuesday, October 18th, we'll be speaking at the monthly MUFON event, MUFON being the Mutual UFO Network, a very, very credible organization. 
and that will be in the Philadelphia area, and that will be at 6.30 p.m. at the Tredefin Public Library, 582 Upper Gulf Road in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Uh, and you can uh, find out more about that at uh, Mainline UFO, I should say, MainlineMUFON.com, MainlineMUFON.com. Uh, meanwhile, find out more about our show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show site. And you can also visit our main site at NewEnglandGhosts.com. And you'll find on our show site uh, nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run, four run on CBS Radio, along with many special shows and podcasts that we've done. Uh, that's 700 hours of your time, if you happen to have that kind of time. Uh, our forthcoming book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, by Paul Eno and Ben Eno, is now available for pre-order on the publisher's website. That's shifferbooks.com. And when you get there, just do a search on Behind the Paranormal or use the link on the BehindTheParanormal.com site. Uh, you can also uh, get it, pre-order it on Amazon.com. Uh, the book is slated for release by Schiffer Books in January, and there will be a release party of some kind. We don't know about that yet, but we'll, we'll let you know when we do. And uh, everyone who can come is invited, of course. Now, you will find my other books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, and Barnes & Noble Nook. Uh, but if you buy them directly at the BehindTheParanormal.com site, uh, I'll be happy to sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those podcasts and recorded shows free. Also on our websites, you'll find direct links to several charities that we have adopted, including usacares.org. They do tremendous things financially for uh, veterans, particularly wounded veterans. And uh, in other words, if you know the, somebody has, has been wounded, say, in Afghanistan, can't make the mortgage that month, out goes a check from USA Cares. Great, great people. Also, Canadian Veterans Advocacy do a lot uh, for the uh, legal uh, benefit of our Canadian uh, cousins who have uh, served with us in the uh, recent uh, wars and um, unfortunately wars are still going on and uh, Canada's in there serving with us as well. Um, also Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. Uh, Tony LaRay out there doing great things for at-risk youth. Uh, YouthMentoring.org uh, in the, some of the toughest neighborhoods in LA doing great things out there. Um, also HelpForHaiti.com uh, for as little as thirty dollars a month, you can you can support a child in Haiti, and and uh, there's a place that, that really is still recovering from the earthquake so many years ago, and uh, they're doing great stuff down there. And I know a lot of the people who are involved, and it's a great charity and great people. So uh, let's um, point out that next Sunday, July twenty fourth, uh, after saying we hardly ever have fiction writers on the show, we will welcome back. Uh, one more novelist and researcher, Steve Alton, who's been on the show before. Steve is really quite famous. He's the author of the Meg, as in Megalodon. Uh, the, the ancient shark uh, was quite horrendous. Uh, the Meg series of novels. And you can look at the uh, latest, um, we'll take a look at the latest in ultra-weird life forms under the sea. Because Steve, you know, as, as does David Brody, Steve knows the background of what he's working on. So um, I also want to point out two books of interest uh, as well that uh, our local listeners might, might be particularly intrigued with. Uh, one is The Bell Witch Project, which contains that story and also a few contributions by yours truly on historic paranormal cases here in New England. And uh, the book also UFO Repeaters, which has an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier. Joe was the... Um, 
afternoon talk show host here on ON 1240 for over 50 years. Uh, passed a few years ago, and uh, we always look forward to seeing Joe um, on the Monday when we had our Monday slot. And Joe was a well-known UFO expert in the 1960s. Very, very interesting, and we have a uh, recorded show as well on that. So anyway, uh, we leave you this afternoon with a thought from one of my favorite philosophers, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Very little is needed to make a happy life. It is all within yourself in your way of thinking. I'm Paul Eno. And Ben, hopefully you'll be back next week. But thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.